Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Consensus Network. Now I've been off uh, the air for a little while. Part of that's because of the holidays. Part of it is because, well, you know, there's not much exciting stuff going on and the interest in cryptocurrency and blockchain right now is I'm sensing pretty low because I wasn't getting any questions, etc. But it's uh, something I'm still interested in, obviously, and something that we are just kind of in, uh, we're frozen, right? It's sort of like crypto winter. Uh, and uh, speaking of winter, I went skiing uh, at uh, Mammoth Lakes over the new year. And that was kind of fun. Brought my uh, nine, six, and three-year-old out there. And the nine and six-year-old learned to ski. Very good time. So hopefully you had a good new year yourself. Now, let's go back to crypto. Let's talk a little bit what's going on. You know, the the reality is, even though the um, price is uh, of Bitcoin... For better or for worse, I should say, is is has not really moved much. We've been sort of right around that three mid three thousand range. Uh, the overall market capitalization has not changed significantly, but despite that, infrastructure slowly but surely continues to grow. Projects continue to develop, uh, despite the frozen nature of the cryptocurrency market. So. Even though the prices aren't moving dramatically in any sort of direction, the technology and laws around it are. Uh, my guest today, uh, now you know this is um, this is a she's really just an interesting person in my view, and she right now is uh, at ground zero for all of these developments in cryptocurrency. Her name's Amy Wan. Uh, you know, the last time I actually interviewed Amy, which is funny, it was actually for Wealth Formula, which is my other podcast. And uh, it's more of a real estate oriented, you know, tradition or not traditional investing, but alternative investing, cash flow investing type uh, show, uh, real assets, et cetera. Anyway, she was on a, over a year ago on that and she was talking about real estate crowdfunding, which was really cutting edge at the time. So she's consistently been at the forefront of technology and sort of the next big thing. And so she's somebody to watch. She kind of knows, um, you know, she knows what's going on and she seems to get a sense of where the ball is going. Um, so anyway, right now she's using her laws. Uh, right now she's using her skills as a lawyer to work with all of all things smart contracts. And so anyway, this conversation uh, that I had with Amy was really interesting. I think you're going to enjoy it. And we will... Uh, we will have her on right as we come back from these messages. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey.
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Amy Wan. Uh, she is the founder and CEO of SageWise, which is a dispute resolution infrastructure for smart contracts, which we'll talk about in a bit. She is a securities attorney who has authored the Bloomberg Law Practice Guide to ICOs and LexisNexis Private Equity Practice Guide. Uh, she was previously a partner at a boutique securities law firm, which was, I think, the last time I interviewed uh, her for Wealth Formula Podcast. Um, and that was, uh, uh, she was involved with the real estate crowdfunding platform. And she's also the co-founder, or she's the founder and co-organizer of Legal Hackers LA. She was named one of 10 women to watch in legal technology by the American Bar Association in 2014, and one of 18 millennials changing legal tech by law.com in 2018. If that's not enough, she was also <laughs> nominated as a finalist for Corporate Counsel of the Year in 2015 by LA Business Journal. Amy, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So you have been busy. I mean, a lot. So <laughs> we were just talking about this offline. I mean, like the last time we talked, it was on Wealth Formula Podcast, and then it may have been 2016. It might have been yeah. about 2016. I was still back in Chicago, and it was very cold. I've since moved <laughs> uh, to Santa Barbara here, and you're in L.A. Back then, we were talking about uh, securities law as it related to real estate, and I think we were talking about crowdfunding. But mm -hmm. um, And then, so here I am. I'm like, you know, we're friends on Facebook, and I'm like, <laughs> All of a sudden, I see you talking about, you know, EOS and blockchain and <laughs> cryptocurrency. And I'm like, what happened? So tell me, how did you, uh, how did yeah. you find the, the crypto sphere? Well, so here's the thing, right? I've actually, you know, been closely following the crypto crowd since I want to say 2012. 2012 wow. was like the first time I ever heard of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2012, I was working for the federal government. I was out in D.C., very um, frustrated with my government job because it's very bureaucratic and slow moving. And so I was like, I need to find somewhere to channel my energy so I don't drive myself insane while working in government. So like a like, shutdown well, or like something code. like that. Yeah. So... <laughs> So I was like, well, I want to learn how to code. And I, I um, joined a Coursera course on coding. And uh, one of the assignments was, hey, build a website and ask people for Bitcoin. I was like, what is Bitcoin and why am I online panhandling? Right? So this is yeah. like the first time I heard of it. Wow. When I moved um, from D.C. back to L.A. in 2013, um, that was you know, I, I was trying to figure out where I wanted my career to go. And that's when I got into real estate crowdfunding, investing, syndication, those sorts of things. But I did briefly take a look at becoming, you know, a, a Bitcoin or a crypto or blockchain attorney, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. But around that time was like when Mount Gox blew up and all that stuff. <laughs> and then, you know, over the years, I became known as like a, a, a fintech innovation type attorney, um, a, a multifamily securities attorney. And um, what was it? I, I, I had left my firm because I found a way to, you know, do all the paperwork stuff for 
for real estate syndication faster. I, I kind of built like a TurboTax. Yeah, I remember that because that was part of what we talked about. It was like an automated version yes. that really was cost effective for smaller deals. Yes. And mm-hmm. so we we launched that and, you know, I was cutting, I had cut out probably 20 hours off of every deal that I was doing. Right. And so now it's like much more on autopilot. Like it's kind of just set up to run. And people started calling me in early 2017 saying, Hey, I want to do this ICO thing. And I was like, what? Okay. What is this ICO uh, thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, this sounds like a security. I'm not touching this with a 10 <laughs> Yeah, right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but I was, I was watching the industry closely and it was like every week I would see some news article that said, Hey, this ICO just got hacked for X millions of dollars. And I was like, that's really strange. Like what's going on here? So I dug in and, you know, there's this, this, there's this technology called smart contracts mm-hmm. that everyone is super excited about. But I looked at it, I was like, oh no, like mm-mm. this is, this as is, is never going to work just based off my experience as an attorney, right? You, you um, mean and- it wouldn't work, it wouldn't fly in the legal sense? It's not that it wouldn't fly in the legal sense. It is, you know, everyone says that smart, well, okay, it's called smart contracts. I always say smart contracts are neither smart, nor are they all the time contracts, right? right? So you you have a number Mm. of issues. One, you may have coding errors, right? You know, the executive director of the Linux Foundation always says, oh, the last bug dies when the last user dies. So you're going to have coding errors, you may have security vulnerabilities um, when they're like upgrades to the overarching system. You know, human nature is, you know, we're a very creative species and, and things happen, right? And at the end of the day, what I find is the most important thing in any sort of contract or agreement is intent. It is what did you intend to get out of this transaction, mm-hmm. right? Where smart contracts, it's very <clears throat> static, right? And so you cannot amend, modify, terminate a smart contract. And, you know, to the extent there is a dispute around the execution of a smart contract, like in 2016 with the DAO, there, well, you know, there's, there's, let me right back today, up a there's no bit. recourse. Let me back up a little bit. For people who don't necessarily know exactly what a smart contract is, this is the, let me give you my dumb version <laughs> and, like the dumbed down version, because I think it's important to have some framework for that. A smart a smart contract, basically, I think of it from a software standpoint is similar to a vending machine, right? There is, you put money in, there is some sort of program, you push a button and all of a sudden you get your Twix bar. That's the transaction. That's what I think of as the most simplistic way to describe a smart contract. Do you think, uh, is that fair? So the example that you just gave is actually the first of two examples that Nick Sabo, the inventor of the smart contract, mm-hmm. gave in his initial um, paper about it. And you're right. I, I mean, a smart contract is just programmable script. It is if A, then B, right? So if Bitcoin reaches $50,000, then sell half of my portfolio, right? That's that's the most basic essence of a smart contract. Now. The second example that uh, Nick Sabo gave was that of a car leasing or car rental agreement, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, whatever the process is today, you have a smart contract. And so long as you make the monthly payments, then the car works. But the minute that you miss a monthly payment, it, the smart contract self-executes because it knows payment wasn't made and 
locks you out of the car, right? So in theory, that sounds great. You don't have to go try to like do crazy collections, hunt down the car, whatever. But there's a number of things that can go wrong. What if it's linked to your credit card, right? And you were issued a new credit card and you didn't update the credit card number. Like you don't want it to just cut off the contract. You, you wouldn't want the car to lock someone out if they're in the middle of the desert, right? That creates a, a safety issue. Um, uh, sometimes it may not be intentional. Sometimes, you know, human nature, you and I deal with real estate, right? Right. What do people do when they know that they're going to get kicked out of something? They don't sit there and they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's fine. If someone has, you know, lost their job, and they know that they're about to get locked out of their vehicle, they are going to pour concrete down the gas nozzle. They're going to Jasco the, mm-hmm. the, the car and rip the interior leather seats, whatever, right? So the thing is, I think in theory, smart contracts can be a great thing, but in the real world, things get to tend things become more complicated because we're human, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of, you know, why we created SageWise is we didn't think the world is just as simple as if A, then B, self-executing, immutable, blah, 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 blah. No, like you, you have to meet the true uh, intent of the contract and you have to provide recourse when intent isn't met. This is particularly relevant, I would say, probably to a lot of the to the enterprise type, you know, the the business applications of blockchain, you know, maybe not necessarily just for a transaction of Bitcoin from one person to another. But if you're going to apply blockchain to, as you said, if you want to apply it to all of a sudden, you know, a real estate transaction or, you know, rent or rent, pay rent, uh, mm-hmm. a smart contract, things like that. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it really can be applied. Look, right now, there's a lot of hype around smart contracts. People are trying to apply to everything. Right. I don't think you should apply it to everything. I think you need to understand the limitations of smart contracts to really understand when it makes sense and yep. when it doesn't make sense, right? I think it makes a lot of sense whenever you're dealing with numbers or whenever you're dealing with things that tend to be what we call much more dry code as opposed to wet code. Mm -hmm. So it's more objective as opposed to subjective, right? Like, you know, the football team, they either win or they lose, right? Like it's, it's usually not, you know, something in between. Um, When you get into subjective things, like, you know, if you look at any English contract, you're going to have all these, these subjective things like reasonable or, you know, uh, substantial, like, what is reasonable? How do you code for substantial? I don't, yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> Someone has to make some sort of determination. So in those cases, honest, you know, the, the reality is that, and you're, you've been in the space long enough to know, we've talked about this. I actually talked to uh, Nick Carter, who you, you may or may not know, um, but Nick Carter was on the uh, show recently talking about, you know, when do you, when you sort of over blockification, you know, like people just yeah. trying to, blockify everything right like uh, just in part because you know it's it's sexy and you know probably uh, i think i read somewhere um, that you know there was some publicly traded companies but just by putting the words blockchain it uh, resulted in increases in their actual value so that that's part of the issue right yeah i mean i i you know i i agree with nick i think he's right i think mm-hmm. everyone's trying to take this technology and apply it to everything but you don't necessarily want to do that, right? Yeah. Like 
just apply it where it makes sense. We don't need right. blockchain everywhere. Yep. We just need it where there's issues around authentication or fraud or, you know, things of that sort. Yeah. And there's some very, very, obviously there's some uh, great uses. So, so with, with regard to going back to SageWise then, your company um, that you're, that you have right now, what role do you play? Is it, is it almost like an arbitrator for smart contracts then or? So, so what we are is I would say um, a backstop, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To the extent that anything is going wrong or looks like it's about to go wrong, we basically have something that's like an arbitration clause in code form that you put into your smart contract um, when you're drafting it so that when it's live and maybe about to execute or anything like that, um, you have um, basically a panic button that you could push and it freezes execution of the smart contract. And then the parties can figure out what to do from there, whether they self-resolve the dispute, Mm -hmm. whether they flip a coin to resolve the dispute, whether they want to amend, modify, terminate, or, you know, actually bring it to, you know, court or an arbitration panel or something, whatever the parties want to do, that's up to them. We just know that it's not as simple as like, oh, it's self-executing and then yeah. it's fine. So it's 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 basically software that kind of alerts you when that when you hit that point. Um, yes. Yeah. So it's notification and um, resolution and enforcement. Right. So so that whole piece of it. No, it, it it's interesting. It, it reminds me of other conversations I've had, and we'll 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 get to like EOS for example later, but. But there is this sort of tension in this um, in this world right now because it's it's relatively new still, particularly you know not Bitcoin but the newer projects and smart contracts etc. There's this tension between what you know wanting to you know create efficiencies through you know through these uh, smart contracts and then the realities of of humans. So there's almost like okay, well. M- what I think that you're going to see, in my opinion, from what I'm, from what you know, you're saying, what others are saying is, we're going to see a lot of hybrid uses. It may not mm-hmm. be all one thing or the other. Right. I mean, another, I think another example of that is the entire, the entire notion of decentralization. Right. <gasps> decentralization, as a general rule, I think is a wonderful concept. The problem is that it's not always the best. It's not the not always completely the best solution right so some level of centralization may result in a significantly higher performance and therefore you're still getting the benefit at the end of the day the consumer the people who are going to use these things are they're going to use them because they make their life better they make their life easier and not because they have an ideological reason uh, that it is completely decentralized. You think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, so here's the thing, right? And this, this topic, you <laughs> I feel agree like everyone yeah. in <laughs> is like crazy about decentralization. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we have all these purists and stuff like that. Look, like, I, you know, to me, decentralization is a spectrum, right? On one hand, you have purely centralized and on the other, you have purely decentralized. And I actually don't really know what purely decentralized looks like because it really depends on your perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe the closest you have to it is Bitcoin, 
um, because there isn't any soul figurehead, any soul, you know, um, foundation or anything like that. But at the same time, you know, the Chinese have mined a ton of Bitcoin and most Bitcoin is held by a couple of individuals slash companies. So it's still kind of centralized itself, right? Yeah, I think Um, 72% is the last what I read is, is, is an Asian, I think. Even within China, it's close. Most of it's in China, and most of it's yeah. in one town. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. So you know, like I, I, you know, I think, and and just to give a counterexample, like everyone's like, oh, corporations, they're terrible, they're evil, they're super centralized. Okay, well, franchises, franchises are, you know, um, they've been around for decades, and yet they are a type of corporation that is in some ways decentralized right and so i don't i don't really believe in purism around this concept i think it's more so like okay well what works right because i you know in 2017 i had so many people come pitch me all these crazy ideas and you know someone was like oh a decentralized pr company i was like i i would never hire that like i want the PR is all about crafting right. a story and understanding the client really well. And I just don't see how that would work very well. Right. But I do think that there are aspects of different business models and things like that, where could it um, benefit from, uh, from inching away from centralization? Sure. And uh, t- totally. Yeah. So, you know, that, and that kind of brings me of course, you know, to when you talk about, centralization versus decentralization um then you get to the issue of governance tell me tell me what your feelings about governance in these projects i mean let's let's i want to talk about your involvement with eos because i'm not entirely sure what you're doing and i'm and i'm dying to know (laughs) but i uh let's start with eos uh and the governance issues surrounding that because they're probably the most you know the project with the you know, there's a lot of controversy in the governance. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's also a project where I think that it's a good example of, of saying, you know, maybe a little bit a little bit more governance is not necessarily a bad thing. But what, why don't you talk about that in, in terms of an example of, you know, governance and centralization and all that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in July of last year, I was called up by some folks and they Mm. wanted me to help um, the EOS blockchain out with uh, certain governance issues. Um, And given that we focus, you know, on dispute resolution, um, I now chair the EOS Alliance Dispute Resolution and uh, Arbitration Working Group. And so, you know, EOS is one of the few blockchains that purports to be a governed blockchain. And in the original white paper, they envisioned having uh, basically an entire arbitration system. And when um, the EOS mainnet went live, that's that's what they had, right? They had this group called ECAF, and they were basically, you know, a highly centralized group of essentially unpaid volunteers who were uh, helping resolve claims that came in, except that, you know, I, I think through, you know, A, the fact that they can't dedicate full time to this because they are volunteers, right? Sure. So you're not, you're not, you don't even have paid folks right now. And secondly, you know, perhaps 
some arbitration orders weren't executed with maybe all the ideal standards of arbitration or dispute resolution in mind, um, because you, you want to go for things like transparency, consistency, things of that sort, that, you know, ECAF became a very controversial subject. In fact, I think right now that uh, the referendum smart contract went live, there is a, uh, uh, you know, a, a suggestion up for vote to basically delete ECAF from the EOS network, right? Um you know, my, my personal belief, and we've gathered a lot of, you know, experts in online dispute resolution around this. My belief is that, you know, having a, a governance structure and a dispute resolution, um, having the ability to have dispute resolution on their blockchain is a competitive differentiating um, feature, right? Because without it, EOS is basically a faster version of Ethereum, right? Which is not so, a bad thing. <laughs> it's not a bad thing, right. but, you know, let, let's say Ethereum does get their act together and um, achieves, you know, all these technological breakthroughs that they're pining for, right. then where does that leave EOS, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think governance is... Uh, one of those things that um, can definitely help blockchain become mainstream because, you know, if, if you look at the mission of EOS, it is not like, oh, let's serve the crypto crowd. It's let's serve small businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, what does small business want? They want <clears throat> transactional confidence. They want certainty. They want to enter into transactions, you know, knowing that they will get what they want out of it and not just like, you know, have no recourse or be held up or whatever, right? So I, I think it is um, a very important feature to have. I think um, maybe the initial way that they designed the arbitration system is perhaps uh, not optimal. You know, there are very a lot of concerns about scale around scalability. You don't want to have a team of volunteers. You really do want to have paid folks. Well, where's that money going to come from? I still don't know today, right? So there's a lot of different right. issues to work through. We got to a certain point within the working group where we came up with a proposal that I think actually works quite well. The only reason I haven't proposed it yet is because there's that genuine question of, well, how are we going to fund all of this, right? You know, like Block One has a ton of money and then everyone else is just like, it's like crickets, right? And we have no idea whether the work or proposal fund initiative is going to go through. So, you know, it... it just for the for the sake of again sort of getting into definitions we often you know you hear these these ideas about governance and you hear of uh, on-chain versus off-chain governance can you talk a little bit about what that means and when you're talking about ecaf it's obviously an off-chain governance situation right so here's the thing i think it's it's kind of like the whole decentralization debate yeah. where everyone's like fanatical about decentralization. And I, I think I come from a more moderate approach of, well, decentralization where it makes sense, right? I feel like a lot of people are fanatical about like, oh, everything has to be on chain to prevent fraud. We don't need everything on chain and you might not want everything on chain. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. for example, in real world arbitration, a lot of times this does not become public record. Why? Because small companies, private companies, they don't want to have that information public, Mm -hmm. right? When you go to court, 
then the information becomes public. But it's it's not always a positive thing. There are there may be personal sensitivities, right? Um, right now, there's a lot of talk about putting Wall Street, the the capital market system, and financial services on blockchain. Um, but at the same time, you know, I can't imagine that that public companies are going to want to put all their transactions on blockchain because <clears throat> folks will be able to look at the transactions happening. Maybe they will trade stocks accordingly, right? And all this stuff is stuff that normally has to be reported to the SEC. So I, I don't even know how you would comply right. with securities laws right. um, if, if all your business data were going on a uh, public blockchain. So, you know, um, privacy and, 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 and for a lot of legal reasons, I think there's a lot of reasons why you don't want everything on chain, but where having things on chain, um, brings some sort of benefit. Like I, I never think that this stuff is like black and white, right? I think it's like, you have to weigh the pros and the cons and which is more, which is more important. And, um, what tips the scale as as a matter of like public policy? Yeah, it, and again, it's a little. It's one of those things. I think it's a it's an ongoing tension. I I heard uh, the Winklevoss twins um, on a show recently, and you know they were talking about uh, Gemini, and and they had organized some event in New York City, which you know you may know about, which was basically this big thing where they were plastering they had a boss and it said you know something <laughs> like bitcoin or, or crypto needs rules and they were man they were like talk about pitchforks coming at them and i sort of don't blame crypto purists too because i think the winklevoss twins they may be doing a lot of good for the value of bitcoin in the long term but it, it does it does seem like they're they're really on that spectrum of of potentially getting a little bit too cozy with Wall Street. What what's your feeling on that? I mean, look, Bitcoin came about because of a general distrust of the financial system right. and the powers that be, right? And I completely understand why um you know, it has been it, it's a concept that's lauded by uh, you know, libertarians and anarchists and all that kind yeah. of stuff. At the same time, you know, I think we also have to take a step back, take a breath, and remember that in order for this stuff to be worth anything, it really needs to be adopted mainstream. Yep. If we want this to be the future, it's got to go mainstream. And there's a lot about this whole world that Main Street folks are not going to understand and are not going to be able to manage. Private keys. I'm sorry, yeah. like <laughs> crypto people can't even manage their private keys. How do you expect, you know, grandma and grandpa to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Mom, mom and dad. So, you know, I, I think that we need, as a community, we need to find ways to make all this easier um, and more palatable for Main Street folks. And one one of many things that has to be worked on is governance because without it, it's, it's just, it's chaos. Right. right. And you know, people, people don't want to work in a chaotic system. Um, I want to shift a little bit and, and you know, there was, 
you know, obviously there was um, a number of of uh, ETF proposals, um, a number of them turned down, including one from the Winklevoss twins. There was a big, there's the one that I think a lot of people seem to be holding their breath on is this one from um, the Chicago Board of uh, Options Exchange and Venex Solid X. What's your what's your feeling on? I mean, I would say personally, I was optimistic about this when I saw Bitcoin sitting around, you know, six thousand sixty five hundred for like several months, and I'm thinking, you know, there's a futures market already. The CBOEs involved, etc. But with all the the sort of um, characters that sort of came out of of nowhere and created this you know, weird war with Bitcoin, um, you know, with, 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 uh, uh, with, uh, uh, Craig Wright, Craig Wright with Craig yeah. Wright. And, um, you know, with all that stuff, uh, it's hard to imagine for me, at least personally, that, that you could see, um, and I, and I understand that that had to do with like, you know, that didn't have to do with Bitcoin, it had to do with Bitcoin cash, but I think people underestimate, the um, entire impact of that sort of craziness of like individuals who seem to be driving market prices from, you know, from a bully pulpit. Um, what's your take on the, you know, the likelihood or not likelihood of an ETF approved? And do you think a lot of these kinds of shenanigans affect it? You know, I, I think um, an ETF is in the realm of possibility one day. Maybe today the regulatory authorities still don't feel comfortable. But, um, I, you know, right now I'm, I'm spending a lot of time uh, talking about and thinking about security tokens or, you know, tokenized security offerings, right? So I think as Wall Street starts to take a much more serious look at this technology, um, and, you know, uh, a, a number of new financial products are, are coming out. I think that um, eventually maybe the regulators will get more comfortable and, and they'll greenlight it. Maybe not today, maybe maybe a couple years from now, but I, I certainly don't think it's impossible. Yeah, and, uh, but, you're, but you're not, certainly not optimistic about this one that I think is there has to be some decision, I think, by March, by the end of March. You're not that optimistic about that one. I haven't, yeah, I haven't. That's the CBOE. That yeah, that's so the, I can't say. Yeah, that's the CBOE Van Eck one that everybody seems to be holding their breath on. But at any rate, um, what, um, so what, uh, so, you know, the other question I had for you when we were talking about EOS that I don't want to forget is another model that, you know, I, I'm actually kind of a, a a fan of, and I really like the the governance model, et cetera, of is what their Hashgraph is doing. Um, are you familiar with that mm -hmm. at all? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, person? we've we've definitely had conversations with um, Hedera. Yeah, what do you think of their governance model? I mean, it, to me, what I like about the way they're doing it is they, you know, many of the problems and inefficiencies that we're talking about. You know, Mance, Mance Harmon is a smart guy. He's been, and he was on our show. He was actually on Wealth Formula, and then we, we put him on the show. That we, we played it on this one as well. But they seem to be anticipating a lot of the 
the issues ahead of time and addressing them ahead of time. And ironically, it yeah. seems to be that's what makes them a little bit controversial, right? Is they come off right the bat right off the bat and say, You can't fork us. And they, they come up right off the bat <laughs> and they say, Well, we're gonna patent this thing. It's you can use it, but you're not changing our yeah. code. And then people, you know, again, the purists kind of freak out about it. But all a lot of the things that you and I are talking about right now are sort of like, okay, well, we're going to make a decision that we're going to go this way because we know it's more efficient. And ultimately, from a user standpoint or a developer standpoint, this is, you know, probably going to make it easier. I mean, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world because, hey, look, like you, if you look at the governance, um, debates on all the various public blockchains it's you know it goes around in circles and circles and circles and sometimes you feel like it's going nowhere and there people aren't dedicated towards that discussion right um they're just dipping their toe in so it's hard for them to take the time to really understand the issues and you know um it it can be it's like it's almost like tragedy of the commons sometimes right Mm -hmm. it's just a lot of talk. It's like crypto Twitter. It's just like an intense time suck, but you're, you never actually get anywhere. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Right. I think, um, whereas, you know, the, the beauty about centralized systems is that, okay, at, at the end of the day, you have responsible parties, um, their job, their sole focus is, you know, certain duties and they have to sit there and make hard decisions and make the executive decisions and it's on their shoulders. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and for better or worse, you know, they get to make those decisions a lot faster than it, than it would take to have community consensus, right? Consensus, it's a bureaucratic mechanism. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I, I, I look forward to see to seeing how the Hedera Hashgraph governance structure works, and and you know I, I will uh, add in that they they also um, envision a dispute resolution system. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Will you be working with them too, or or, or are you? Uh, we actually exclusive? have a partnership with Hedera Hashgraph. So, no kidding. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Amy, I uh, I have to tell you, I'm, I I have I am heavily invested in Hedera, so you better make that work. <laughs> so at any rate um listen what where else can we um learn about what you're doing it's just super exciting stuff and i'm so uh happy to hear that you're you know you're in the middle of this and and of course you know it'd be better if we weren't in a uh, middle of crypto winter but um but when when spring comes you're gonna be right in the middle (laughs) of it right so so where can we learn about everything you know all the things that you're up to yeah, sure. So um, I don't use Twitter a lot, but when I do, um, I'm at Amy Y one W A N on Twitter. People can find me on LinkedIn. I post a lot there. Um, you know, Facebook, Telegram, the regular social media channels, and then our website is just SageWise.io. Got it, Amy. Thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We'll be. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. 
and get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222-QRP-BOOK, one word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Right back. So welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that show again. I think Amy is so interesting. I think she's just got, um, she's sort of like all over the place, but she's like, you know, she's like Wayne Gretzky. You know, Wayne Gretzky always knew where the puck is going, and he was there before everybody else. Um, if you're into hockey, you'll understand what I'm saying. But um, she's she's like that kind of person, so it's interesting. Keep an eye out. Follow her on Twitter and stuff and see what she's up to. I certainly will be back in touch with her. She's in L.A. now, so it'll be good to get a chance to meet up with her. Um, now, let's, you know, we don't have any questions. Uh, and again, this is part of why I thought, you know, we don't necessarily need to be pounding the pavement in terms of content here. We'll do content when it's relevant, when there's things going on, and maybe we'll pick up when the market picks up. But really... Um, what I do want to talk about a little bit is some of the things that are important that we've been looking at. Um, specifically, we have been waiting for two major things uh, in the institutional side of things. One was the the possibility of an ETF, you know, the Chicago Board of uh, Options Exchange and uh, Solid Vanek had this very promising ETF that uh, a lot of people literally. Uh, even last month, we're saying they thought it was going to happen. Well, it didn't. Um, and, of course, it wasn't rejected. That's the thing. It wasn't actually rejected. Uh, actually, the application itself was withdrawn. Now, why? Well, the official news behind it is that there was, you know, because of the government shutdown and, frankly, that there was no uh, SEC people around <laughs> to, to talk to you about it and negotiate or whatever, talk about the issues around custodianship that were the primary concern. And so rather than sort of run out the clock, because I think the absolute deadline uh, is in February, uh, they decided that, hey, we're just going to pull the application off so we don't get rejected. Because the time uh, the time ran out. And in the meantime, you know, because the government shutdown, we don't know how long it's going to go. Uh, the SEC... Um, you know, people over there are probably driving for Uber right now, trying to make some money while um, while uh, there's all of this ridiculous sort of back and forth in Washington. Anyway, that's that's that. It doesn't mean it's over, but I will say this. Uh, you know, uh, I, it's not surprising to me. It's a very convenient thing to happen right now, too, because I think, uh, as I've said on the show a number of times, I just think the... Uh, Eco, the 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 entire uh, ecosystem right now is a little bit damaged uh, from all the nonsense that happened with Craig Wright and and um, you know the the Bitcoin Cash debacle. Anyway, the other thing that we were looking at and we, we were waiting for was the launch of Backed. It was supposed to happen already, right? It was supposed to happen in January um, and it got delayed. And they're also saying it's part, partly because of the government shutdown. You know what? I don't buy it. This all sounds a little bit too convenient to me. I think everyone is re really waiting for is ultimately is bottoming of the market, you know. And 
uh, market capitulation. And if you think that's already happened, maybe you're right. I don't know. I'm not a trader, but I'll tell you, there's so many people out there right now who think that Bitcoin is going to drop below 2000 before it heads off to 100000 that, um, you know, that sheer, you know, sentiment by so many people alone is potentially likely to cause it. The technical guys are all over this. We've talked about Tyler Jenks, who was on the show early on. Tyler is still convinced we're going to go to Bitcoin 1000. And um, frankly, I, I hope he's right. I, I hope he's right um, for two reasons. First, I would, I would buy a bunch at 1000 Um but the other reason is that I don't think that we're going to see, you know, I don't think we're going to see a bull market until we have a true uh, market capitulation. And the fact that this market's just sitting in the mid 3000s, it just doesn't work that way, right? I mean, you got to have something happen. It's as clear, like even for like 30 minutes where something just goes so low, it's no one can believe it and everybody's given up. That's what market capitulation is, and I think that's what people are looking for. doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I think that's what people are looking for. So nobody's real eager to go in there right now and buy Bitcoin, even though, you know, if you look at the long-term, you know, uh, possibility of, of 10Xing, 100Xing, et cetera, it's, it's considerable. Um, and, and I think as an asymmetric bet, this is still a very, very good price, but you know, um, I just think there's too many people who think it's still not low enough and that it's still going to have this um, this 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 ultimate capitulation. And I, I would tell you that my uh, again, I'm not a trader, but I've been following Tyler and I, I, <laughs> I told myself that I really probably am not interested in buying anything until Tyler tells me tells me otherwise. So um, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, I think that if Bitcoin drops under 2000, I'll probably, you know, definitely grab some because I think, you know, it's hard to predict how close to a thousand it gets or how much lower. But I think under 2000, um, I think would be a no brainer for me personally. But anyway, um, check out Consensus Network if you're, again, still, you know, just trying to catch up a little bit about how you can prepare yourself to to buy Bitcoin potentially. Um, you know, grab an, a Coinbase account. Uh, you can get $10 of free Bitcoin if you use my uh, link there. And they'll send me $10 of free Bitcoin too. So we'll be doing each other a favor there. And uh, other than that, you know, make sure you also, um, you know, if you're interested in learning, I think um, we've got we've got uh, a link there to Cryptoverse, uh, the Cryptoversity uh, um, uh, thing that uh, that I think is potentially useful uh, for people who really want to learn more. Anyway, that's it for me this week uh, and potentially next week too. Who knows? Uh, on Consensus Network. Thanks for joining me. This is Buck Joffrey uh, signing off.